It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. And I am over the moon to be joined by John Cameron Mitchell, creator of Hedwig, uh, the recently re-released short bus, the absolutely wild musical podcast, Anthem Homunculus. And now he's the star of Joe versus Carol on Peacock. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. For sure. So I've uh, I've followed your career fairly obsessively. Uh, basically, if you're a part of a project, like that's a, that's a good beacon for me that I'm going to like it. Um, I watched Tiger King along with everybody else in the universe when we were all at, at home and sad and bored and that was a really fun ride. And when I heard that you were attached to the dramatization of that story, it was like, I could not possibly be happier. So I, I want, but it, but it was unusual. You don't usually star in things that you don't create. You're not, I'm not used to turning on my television and seeing John Cameron Mitchell in a leading role. So. How did this happen? How did you wind up playing Joe Exotic opposite Kate McKinnon? Well, you're, you're right. I, I didn't really expect to be a lead in the mainstream thing. Um, I had done some leads in some tiny films that weren't mine, you know, in the past, but it was, it came around as an audition. And I was like, okay. And I'd, I think I watched one episode at that time because I wasn't, you know, it felt a little rubbernecky, the docu series. So I didn't extremely. Not, I watched yeah. it the same way that I watched like Real Housewives. It's like I know I'm not yeah. supposed to be enjoying this. I know I'm not a real kind of dirty, <laughs> but it's I'm fun. Not a housewives so. gay. You know, I have to. I have to have more empathy. And so yeah. I was watching, but I was like, well, compelling characters. Uh, maybe an unempathetic view of them in the docu series. But the script was very different and you really got into who he was and who they both were, where they came from, the trauma they survived and how they reacted to it. So it felt much more like a kind of campier, well, I mean, Shakespeare can be campy, but it felt like kind of Richard III or something, you know, someone who was a misfit and is never going to be heard again, you know, and we are the same age, we're from the same part of the country, there but for the grace of God go I, you know, he created his zoo and his communities and I created my plays and movies. So I understood the idea of banding together with misfits and being, in my case, I hope a benevolent dictator, in his case, unfortunately, it, it, it you know, went over to, um, you know, let's say imitating his oppressor to the point of him becoming, be, you know, going beyond them and becoming an attempted murderer. But what a great role to play. So I was in London doing Sandman for Netflix and I realized it had to be a self tape. I hadn't auditioned in 25 years. <laughs> and when I do, I go all the way. So I got the mullet and the makeup and the hair and, I, and a friend to shoot it in an interesting way. And I had these zippered pants that zipped in the back and so I flashed my asshole for the audition <laughs> in an improv moment which I tried to get into the series but uh they didn't, cut didn't it out work. but I have the outtake on my Instagram if anyone wants to see my blurred asshole 
Um, so I, I just want to went, admit to having seen it, but yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> but I put it, you know, I went all out. And if I didn't get it, I was fine because I did my best. And I, suddenly four days later, I got the role without a callback. And and it was, and the Kate being part of it was a miracle. And, it, you know, both of us, you know, come from an anarchic, you know, alternative you know, cabaret environment. And we, we both push, try to push the piece into a, you know, let's say a crazier uh, realm. Uh, Aton, who wrote beautiful script was, you know, a little more, a little more conservative about it and more, you know, man of moderation while we were, you know, the, the monsters of, of immoderation. And but in be, you know between us we i think we found a good sweet spot and i'm really happy with the with the final result i was genuinely shocked by it like i i tuned in one i mean i i watched the docu series i thought i knew the story like i thought i knew the so whole thing more. there's so much more i tuned into this version because i love you and because i love kate mckinnon had it been other actors, I might have skipped it because I thought I knew everything there was about this story. But because it was you guys, I, I tuned in and I don't know, maybe it was the second episode that I was like, this is absurd. It's a mirror image. It's like it's like a reverse mirror of the docuseries. In the docuseries, I was watching it knowing that I was feeling a little guilty. There were no redeeming qualities to any of the characters. It's like, you don't care whether Joe wins or Carol wins because they're both odious human beings. Yes. And there's there's very little humanity. Yes. Watching your show, watching Joe versus Carol, it was the exact opposite experience. I was rooting for every single human being. Yeah. Even even the minor characters from the docu series are sort of imbued with a, a real richness and a backstory and a is something you can attach your heart to. Like, was yeah. was the humanity of these characters was that central to why you wanted to make this story? Was was to to flesh that out because it feels it feels like such an important part of it all throughout. Yeah, very much so. I mean, all of my work has elements of camp and extremity, but the characters there's empathy for the characters and you yeah. ultimately that is the important that is fiction you know you must put your your you know your feet in other people's shoes and understand what it's like to be someone else that is the great gift of fiction otherwise it's just rubbernecking again and and it's or it's you know passive you know watching a, a roller coaster ride in a marvel movie you know which are very formulaic and that bores me, you know, and I'd much rather do something like this than, a, than an Avengers, you know. Though as a kid, I was obsessed with the, the comic books, but they, <laughs> I they would were- I frankly love to see the superhero that you came up with, but I would only want you to be in an Avengers movie if you were allowed to write and concept your own role. <laughs> I would love to, you know, only someone like Taika Waititi has really been able to right. me mess with the program there. Um, but I was offered an X- man role way back you know nightcrawler and i i just saw that it was going to be five hours of makeup and two lines and i was like i can't do this and he was my favorite you know when i was a kid but the comic books were much more unpredictable than the, this the movies movies need to be they need to be commodified or uh, formulized you know everything gets formulized now you know whether you're a top or a bottom is is it's all about capitalism it's about selling selling things and and keeping them in in uh in boxes so that's the opposite of what I want to do. And, and Joan versus Carol was part, felt like something that I 
could make myself, you know, and I worship Carol and I love all my actors and it was a gift to be able to play this. I was also able to buy my first house because of it, you know? So it's funny that late in life, things like this come kind of like a pension, you know, in a socialist world and think, you know, late in life, I have a, a renaissance on TV and able to mostly playing gay villains of some kind. Um, while I work on my other stuff, I'm working I love you on in a, Shrill. <laughs> oh, thank you. Another villain in a way. Um, and I'm playing a new villain on the show uh, called City on Fire, which is going to be on Apple. And I'm really? meanwhile working on a TV series that I'm developing with Linda Perry and, uh, wow. and a podcast, a fictional podcast series called Cancellation Island. Where do the cancel people go? All right, I'm sold. Like, take my money. <laughs> so before we get into all of the amazing things that you're going to be doing, which makes me just fills me with joy, um, Joe and Carol, the docu series got so much wrong, like like literally yeah. wrong. Like they they misgendered a cast member. That was one of the yeah. first things that I was like, oh, I'm watching something different here. Was when you started yeah. using different pronouns for this cast member, and I had to go back and be like, wait, wait, wait. I remember different pronouns from the docu series for this character. Yeah, had to look it up, realize that they just straight up misgendered this man. Yeah, you fixed that. The story of Joe's first husband, he had a husband for 17 years who, who yeah. died of AIDS. That's just not in the docu-series no. at all. And talk about You're, a You know that he married thing. two men in some sort of, some ceremony that it was like, yeah, does he care? Does he not? Is this a stunt? Is this real? You don't know. Nobody really answers those questions in the docu-series. Did, did you set out to like do the appropriate queer version of the story that needed to happen? <laughs> I did not. Um... You know, Eitan, the writer, who's a lovely straight guy, uh, was sensitive to all that. But it was he was sensitive to all of his characters. You know, it's not just because they were queer. You know, he he was just let's honor them. You know, and I, though I don't condone Joe's behavior, I did honor him as a human, and I even wrote him a song that I sang, which is available online called "Call Me Joe," about him singing to his boyfriend Travis, who died, and. Nat Wolf, who plays Travis, sings on it too. And the only comment he had was he saw a picture of me and said, Mitchell's going to make me look like a flaming fag. I saw that. When I'm just it's like, oh, the self-hatred in that is so no. dark. I know. And it's, it's, it's common for people of my generation, gay men, to sort of denigrate their femininity or, or you know, be afraid of it. Uh, so my response was simply a painted nails emoji. Um, <laughs> And, but he hasn't said a word since. So it made me think that maybe he's got, he realizes that it was a sensitive portrayal, not I'm sure inaccurate in his view because he is a, a, you know, a megalomaniac, but we're not gonna let him off the hook as a human. Right. You, you know, and, and, and be, you know, and be lazy about our portrayal about a real human being with great flaws and great traumas that he came from and great sympathy and empathy that he portrayed until he drove himself crazy um and society helped drive him crazy and carol drove him crazy and joe drove her crazy there were people who could have been allies and friends misfits trauma victims who ended up destroying each other instead of the real enemies you know, of the, let's say the patriarchy in a way. 
So to me, it's not just a modern correction of things. It's, it's what any piece should be is like, go deeper, find out more. Don't stint on the fun and the comedy, but honor the people as real people instead of just, you know, watching them behave badly. Oh, no. I mean, it's tons of fun. Like, I don't want to. And humanity is what makes it more fun. Yeah. Like, because I care about these characters, I'm able to really like I'm able to like revel in the absurdity of Joe Exotic's presentation of himself. Yeah. Because I actually give a crap about him. Otherwise, it's who is this person on my screen and why am I devoting this much of my life to learning about him? (laughs) Exactly. I'd be very curious to see whether he says anything whether the actual Joe Exotic says anything post seeing the portrayal. He said he never saw he the documentary. He must love parts of it. I mean, you walk into a bar with, you know, the tiger on a leash and, and frankly, you look really hot. Like, I, I can't imagine watching that and being like, that's not me. That's totally inaccurate. I was never yeah. that cool, you know? Yeah, I, he may not have walked in in that exact same way, but... But he yeah, wished I, he did. I, yeah. And I don't know how much he can watch in there. You know, he said he never watched the docuseries. I don't know if that's possible you know there must have been some way he could have watched it um if only because i'm sure he's the star of his jail you know what i mean he's not the one getting raped in the shower for sure you know it's like you know it's it's i'm sure it's hell in there but he's also got a certain royalty uh in there as well which we even poke at in our episode eight um but i just i had more fun shooting this uh, in front of camera than I've ever had. It was even more than Hedvig because that was too hard because I was directing. But in this, I could just concentrate on the acting. Had a blast. Aton was a great guy to work with. I love the directors. They took my input. You know, they let me, you know, work with the dialogue. The big scene in the courtroom, I had a lot of fun, you know, suggesting stuff for that because it was almost like a Broadway number, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a gift, you know, and, and I... Uh, I'm now able to help out family members and, you know, have this house and, you know, I know that things come and go, but um, they came, you know, and, uh, and I'm going to go to New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good for you. I mean, I'm, you don't usually get to have a career like you've had, like as rich and as, as important to people on the margins of society as yours has been. And have mainstream success that results in the ability to buy a house. Like those two things, like those live in separate artistic spheres, you know, 99% yeah. of the time. I know. I think so, my, my heroes are people like John Waters and Todd Haynes and Gus Van Sant, people who flirt with the mainstream, but, and aren't dumb about, you know, paying the bills, but have to do stuff that they care about deeply. And it is often, you know, the job for the money and the job for the other. And I've always done that. And I always will do that. And I tell young people, there's, you know, you have to have your own thing and then their thing. And it's, it's just the way that you keep a balance and keep your mind sane. I wanted to ask you about that. Cause you, I mean, your career is, is, is you're very sparing in the roles that you take. And every time you show up, I wind up thinking, well, that had to be played by him. Like there's no other, there's no other way that that character is going to come out unless we have John Cameron Mitchell doing it. Do you recognize them right away when they cross your desk or do you have to sit with them for a while? Like how, how are you so good at knowing exactly where you should be and how you should show up? 
Well, I mean, there's my own things, which I create with collaborators and that, you know, like Anthem Homunculus, which was my musical podcast, which I actually feel is my chef d'oeuvre, you know, my favorite thing I've done. And that comes from, you know, making it happen and low, lower budgets and great stars love to do podcasts because they can shoot a season in a couple of, you know, record when a you season had Glenn in a Close couple of days. And Patty Lapone and Cynthia Arriva. I mean, yeah. like, like, this is a star studied musical podcast, which I think probably yeah. the only star studied musical podcast. There's a few. I also did one called The Cinnamon Bear, which a friend made, uh, which is on Audible. But there's a lot of money jobs nowadays because of streaming and that's great people can pay it's like you know rupaul's created a industry for drag performers to actually make money make a living which is great but there's also there's got to be your own things and sometimes they're both you know like maybe the tv series i'm developing will be on a major streamer and i can make you know a, a long story uh, a series for the first time and and use my powers the things that I've learned there, which has always been a little hard for people to digest. You know, Hedwig would not be made as a, a feature today. Maybe it would be made as a series, you know, um, mm -hmm. but with a, it would be a different cast and different budget. You know, back then it was, it was an, there was a golden age of 90s and 2000s cinema. You know, it was maybe our third American golden age of film which is gone now. I mean, there's once in a while a good film, but people don't rush to see them anymore. It's not the same culture of film going. So you don't get the daring. You don't have DVDs, which helped finance them. You, uh, you're lucky if it's on Netflix. It, you know, it's just very different for film. I've always done other things, theater, music, concerts, TV. So I don't, if I never make a film again, I, it wouldn't kill me, you know, because I'll be making novels, I'll be doing this and that. Um, I, but I do, I careful about what I do. <clears throat> it can't be something that feels, you know, whenever I do something I don't like, even for the money, I, I become a person I don't like, you know, I don't want to be on set or I, you know, I'd be one of those pissy people that you hear about um, who treat people not badly, but coldly. And I don't want to be that person ever. So I am very careful. I keep my overhead load in order to do that as well. That's great. I wanted to ask more about Hedwig because I find it fascinating that a story, there have been no pretenders. Like there is, there is no, like there is Hedwig and the Angry Inch is a singular story. There, it, there are no, the Hedwigs of the world. There's just Hedwig. <laughs> so, right. And it's still going like there, there you, you mentioned RuPaul's Drag Race. There's a Drag Race star who's starring in Hedwig and Leeds right now. Yes, this, I'm in contact with music, them. Uh, like this musical is it's it wasn't located at a point in time at all. Somehow when I saw it in the 90s as a teenager, I was like, oh, this is bleeding edge of modern. And anything that is bleeding edge of modern is not going to last because the bleeding edge of modern changes every year. And yet somehow. Hedwig has remained, like I've seen it, I can't tell you how many times I have seen it live over the course of my 40 years because big actors want to play it and people keep wanting to go to it. We The movie got made of it. Like, what do you think is so enduring about a story that feels so niche? I don't know. We, you know, Stephen and I made it for ourselves. We made it for our friends. We we didn't have illusions about it. We were just trying to make what we liked at that time. 
I was doing very mainstream acting. I really was hanging out in different environments that were much less mainstream. And I wanted to brought what I learned from Broadway, for example, and combine it with stand-up and drag and punk, put together everything that I loved. You know, the theater stuff that was more punk or drag wasn't as well considered and crafted. And the Broadway stuff was so, the music and everything was just so boring to me and, and, and hackneyed. It wasn't using the energies of these other theatrical forms like punk and drag in a way that I thought was complex. So we combined everything that we loved and then tried to make it good. And then people came, you know, and it wasn't a big hit ever uh, financially, like Off-Broadway or the film were both kind of flops. Again, when you're, you're not thinking about what other people want. You're thinking what you want. It, something more unusual comes out. You know, it's like the David Lynch theory. You know, if it happens in the dark, it, it, it can gestate on its own. If people are staring at it the whole time, it might not have a normal development and you start second guessing your own instincts and going, what do other people want? How is it gonna be popular? And unfortunately, a lot of young people because of social media are doing that with their lives. You know, they're branding themselves right. at 10 and what do people want? My tits, you know, and these things right. are ephemeral and, and then they end up and they're 18 and their so-called celebrity is gone and they, they hadn't cultivated anything lasting. Um, so they end up doing a lot of drugs and, you know, kids are and capitalism have gone together now, you know, they've lost their kidness, they've lost their experimentation. And granted, I appreciate that young people are trying to make the world better often, sometimes, you know, overly so, you know, there's a kind of overcorrection of, of PC policing that gets on my nerves. But, you know, I come from the punk place where you say whatever you want, it's how you say it. Right. You know, nowadays it's, oh, you can't say that. And I'm like, don't tell me what I can say. I survived AIDS, you know, ACT UP <laughs> is a good model of, of activism where everything was said, but it was, you know, it was done with humor and it was done with urgency and done with planning. So I get, I get annoyed with that stuff and I worry that it pushes people to the right, you know, who wouldn't nat naturally be there because they're being told what to say. Of course, the right is full is full of canceling too, you know, and book burning and and don't say gay, but it ends up happening on both ends, you know, and then you're you're kind of squeezed in the middle. That was that was what I wanted to ask you in the last minute that we have. Do you do you have anything that you would want to say to the parents of gay kids in Florida, or to the kids themselves in Florida, or to Ron DeSantis? Like, <laughs> is there? Is there any message that you want to communicate to the kids who have to live under that? I mean, I'm only hope, I can only hope. I mean, we're about to have abortion that's illegal. We're about to yeah. perhaps lock in Republicans because of cheats in the, uh, in the voting laws and redistricting and a lot of unfairness. But as in other cultures where there's a top-down authoritarianism, you breed a disaffection among young people, especially, and eventually those young people take over. Censorship and hatred and animus are not good things to build a society on, and they eventually destroy themselves. So I really believe that our natural desire to get along, to find a place where we can all shine, but also interact and help each other and not necessarily 
separate ourselves by our victimhood, which is, you know, everyone's a victim now, including the Christians and stuff, you know, that's the currency of the day is victimhood, is moving on from that. Because once you, when you're a victim and you never get out of that, you're still a victim. You're a victim to the idea of being a victim. It's just like someone who hurt you in the past. You can hate them forever and then be under that thumb of hatred. You're still under their power if you hate them. Or you can strangely forgive them and transcend them. In this case, it's hard to transcend when you're being crushed down and your democracy is being threatened. But I really believe young people will not stand for it. I mean, I certainly won't. I have the opportunity maybe to live in another country if things get too bad here. But I also believe in America's ingenuity and capacity to change. We're flexible. Um, You know, I I still believe in the, you know, Statue of Liberty version of America. Mm -hmm. Bring bring your unwanted here and we'll make something new and better, uh, which is the queer person's view, ultimately. Of course, there's more queer fascists than there used to be. Because, you know, acceptance does breed mediocrity and uh, ugly alliances, but, and, you know, power and money still win. But in my case, it doesn't win. You know, I've learned that you, you begin with, with openness and with uh, good, goodwill that, 90% of the people will respond with that. There's always the 10 you have to deal with and they can really stink the place up. But um, I'm looking forward to spending more time in New Orleans, which is a smaller community. It's still a street community. It's a little bit like New York was in the past. You know, New York's mm-hmm. changed a lot. Yes. Um, still full of creative people, but the infrastructure and the real estate and such have squashed a lot of spontaneity and dissuaded a lot of people from moving here who have a lot to offer. Um, But that's just a boon to the smaller cities. You know, people are leaving those big cities and going to other places and hopefully bringing uh, resources and ideas and and energy uh, while not disrespecting where they're going to, hopefully, you know, the beauty of the, of the local energy and culture and community. It's like, how can we add to it? Not just co-opt it. So the ideal. That's my goal, yeah. I moved a lot as a kid, so I'm, I'm used to that, you know, appreciating the differences. I love learning new languages and songs in different languages and cultures. And what do you do? What do you do here? What works for you? There's a, there is a community uh, that's very loose of queer people. I can go to any country and go to a queer environment and have something in common, yeah. which transcends race and gender. And I, I love that, you know, we're all a gender of one we're ultimately all uh, a, a nation of one. And how do we, what are our alliances with other nations of one? Joe versus Carol is on Peacock. John Cameron Mitchell, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. This is just Oh, great. you're so welcome. Happy spring. with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.